Today we conclude our series Sola, which is Latin for only. For the last month, we've honored the themes Martin Luther and the other reformers brought to light more than 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation. Our intention with this series was not to glorify Protestants. We actually really appreciate our Catholic brothers and sisters. But every now and then, we like to have a series focusing on some of the key beliefs that are central to Christianity and therefore to City Church. And so we've used the framework of the solas from the Reformation to do just that. The Reformation, the Reformers had three mantras, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. The other two, sola Christas, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, were added a little later. Today, we're looking at to the glory of God alone. And I think this topic can be a bit confusing. For starters, the idea of glorifying God or praising him all the time makes God sound like some sort of quivering, insecure egotist who always needs to be told how great he is. C.S. Lewis, an English professor of, at Oxford University who became a Christian as an adult and wrote many books on Christianity as a lay theologian, writes in his book in the Psalms about how off-putting it had been to him initially that so many Bible verses, particularly in the Psalms, admonish us to praise God. Here's just one example from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name, for in his temple all cry glory. Lewis writes, gratitude to God, reverence to God, obedience to God, I thought I could understand, not this perpetual eulogy. If you're here today still unsure if you buy into this Christianity thing, not to worry. I hope what you hear today will clarify some of this confusion. One of the challenges for us in understanding God's glory is that we tend to make God in our image. We ascribe characteristics to God that we humans have. You and I, in our pride, are constantly building up our egos, and so we figure God must be too. We forget we are dealing with God, the eternal, infinite, unchanging, holy, pure, righteous God. God sums it up pretty well to us human beings in Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. God doesn't need our constant praise. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So if God isn't in need of our praise... Maybe there is more going on here. Maybe God being glorified is something other than us propping up a vain person fishing for compliments. Maybe we can get at it by understanding what the word glory means. We don't use the word glory much today. It's one of those churchy religious words that frankly seems irrelevant. 
So let's see if we can try to find some other ways of talking about this same concept. Because if we understand the concept of glorifying God more, maybe we will actually do it more. The Greek word for glory, doxa, means to give your opinion of, value placed on someone. In essence, it's bearing witness to the goodness of something. We might say increasing the fame of or the reputation of another, giving something more weight or credit than it had previously. Permit me to riff on this for a bit. When we give glory to someone, we want you to think better of them. We're giving them some kudos. We're giving them a shout out. We're making a case for, we're giving a shameless plug. We're posting their product on our blog. We're reciting an ode to, dedicating our book to. We're harding on Facebook or for anyone under the age of 30. We're retweeting their post. We're arranging for an introduction. There's someone I really want you to meet. Or we're bolstering their reputation in conversation. Did you hear about so-and-so? She's a rising star. C.S. Lewis makes the argument that whatever we delight in or enjoy will spontaneously overflow into praise. Whatever we are enjoying or touched by, we want to share with others. You get engaged. You want to tell others. You got accepted into the grad program or got the job. You want to share it with others. In fact, the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Somehow, The enjoyment of something is incomplete until it is expressed and shared in by others. We found something so good, we want to tell others. Now, I know this is going to embarrass him, but I'm going to brag on Leif Solberg for just a minute. I should say I did get his permission to share all of this illustration, but only because we both hope it'll make the point about who God is. And this is classic Leif. When I asked him yesterday, he said, I'm not looking for publicity here, Amy, but I do want to be helpful to you if you think it would be helpful. (laughs) So just so you know, it wasn't his idea. For his entire career, Leif has been a primary care physician and then a researcher on quality care for patients. I was talking with Leif this week of Alpha, and I learned he's going to be pretty busy this winter because he's working on a, a grant that is studying how we make coordination of care more effective in primary care clinics for high-cost, high-needs patients. So that's patients who have complicated medical health problems and they have few resources to deal with them. He's trying to determine what factors really help with their care so we can put our energy and money and resources towards those things. Cool. As we're talking, Leif casually mentions, yeah, the grant is $4 million. Wow. And then come to find out, Leif is not just working on this grant, he's running the thing. He's the principal investigator of this project. He's overseeing 400 primary care clinics in Minnesota. And here's the kicker, Leif is 81 years old. (laughs) Yes, I want to be like Leif when I get older. I'm immediately turning to people around me, I'm like, did you hear this? Get a load of this, look what Leif's doing. This is a little bit of what it means to glory. Get a load of this. Check this out. This is so cool. You need to hear this. Our delight in something spontaneously overflows into praise. We can't help share it with others. Now, if you're you're involved in advertising or marketing, you know your job is so much easier when you have a good product. 
when you've tried it and you like it, when you find it superior in quality and you trust the company will produce it as at a reasonable cost in a timely way. Here's the thing, with God, we have the absolute best product. We have so much to work with. We have something that surpasses all others, but we don't often think about that. We live in 21st century North America where the very air we breathe is therapeutic humanism. God, we don't think much about him. Our focus is on ourselves, our problems, our money, our families, our ambitions, our fears. And so I think before we can praise or glorify, we've got to see God for who he is. We've got to be reminded of that. Maybe then our delight will erupt into praise. Maybe then we'll say to others through our witness and through our example, you got to hear this. Look at me now at the view of God the disciple John gives us in Revelation 4 and 5. It's two chapters, so I won't go verse by verse. I'll just highlight a few themes and make some comments along the way. This is the vision the Apostle John receives from God. And this particular vision is not off in a distant time, far away, high up in the heavens. It is a vision of what is happening right now. Revelation 4, starting with verse 2. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Let's stop right there. This is good news, City Church. The throne of the universe is occupied. It is not up for grabs. It is not contested. Someone occupies it. How encouraging this must have been for John. John's writing in 96 AD, 40 years after the Emperor Nero had begun feeding Christians to lions. Many of the early founders of the church, like Peter and Paul, had already been martyred. John himself is writing from the island of Patmos, a rocky little island in the Mediterranean Sea where he's been exiled for his faith in Christ. From his perspective, it sure seemed like Caesar or the emperor were on the throne. But look at how John describes the one on the throne. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Notice the words appearance and like. John is attempting to describe in words and images what can never adequately be described. Jasper, ruby, emeralds, these are all stones that suggest brilliance, beauty, majesty, and radiance, which is like the light reflected in these stones. It's how the Apostle Paul describes God in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. But not just radiance and beauty. Power. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, rumblings and peals of thunder. If you trace those images in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you'll see lightning and thunder are a way of speaking of God's power and holiness. And this one throne is surrounded by 24 other smaller thrones, each with an elder on them. 
12 representing the church before the coming of Jesus and 12 representing the church after the coming of Jesus. But more significantly, verse 6, in the center of in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Now remember, this is a specific genre of literature. These animals are not literally covered with eyes all over them. The first living creature was a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Four is the number of creation, four corners of the earth, four winds. Each of these four represents the whole animal created order. Jewish tradition, notably by Rabbi Abihu's teaching in 300 AD, taught that the mightiest of the birds was the eagle. The mightiest of the domestic animals was the ox. The mightiest of the wild animals was the lion. And the mightiest of all was man. And here is what the mightiest of our entire created order say of this one on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This one was not created. He always has been. He always will be. You can't precede him. And this is the Lord Almighty. This is John's favorite word for God in this book. Some of us are so used to this word, it no longer moves us. Almighty. Pantokratos. All might. The one on the throne has all power and strength. As such, he is never a victim of circumstance nor of human manipulation. The worship of the four living creatures prompts the worship of the 24 elders. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before him and say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. Whether the world realizes it or not, whether you and I acknowledge it or not, we all live and move and have our being in him. One author writes, evil can strut on the stage of history only as long as the ancient of days on the throne so Jesus replied to Pilate when Pilate asked him, don't you know I have the power to free you or crucify you? No, Jesus replies, you got it wrong. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. This is good news, friends. No leader on this earth, regardless of their position, sits on the throne. This throne is occupied by the one who was and is and is to come, the one who is all might. But he is not just all might and eternal, holy other. He is quite close to us. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is how John describes it from the vision he saw that day on the island of Patmos, Revelation 5, 1. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The scroll represents the full account for what God is doing in the world, namely bringing his kingdom of heaven to earth. It represents God's project of rescuing creation from the deadly dangers that have taken root within it. And it's filled with writing on both sides. The ancient Near East only wrote on one side. It has seven seals. Seven remembers the number for completeness. This scroll is complete. This is God's comprehensive plan for rectifying what is wrong in the world and establishing his gracious rule. And like an architect with a rolled up design for a building or a general with a rolled up plan for a campaign, it's all in the right hand of the one on the throne. Open it. But like King Arthur's sword in the stone, the scroll cannot be opened by just anyone. Revelation 5, 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Is there anybody who's fit to open it? Anybody who hasn't himself or herself contributed to the problems of the world through our own wrongdoing? Is there anybody who can be part of the solution, not just the problem? Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. These two phrases, lion of the tribe of Judah and root of, root of David, are messianic phrases, meaning the entire Old Testament is littered with these phrases that are attributed to the one who was anticipated, the one who would come to save God's people, who would bring in God's kingdom and usher in his reign. If it's a lion and it's symbolism, if this is symbolism, I will take a lion any day. Give me Mufasa, king of the pride lands, to protect me. Give me Aslan from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and I'm good. The king of the beasts, the ferocious, the feared, the powerful. Lions roar. Lions have strength. Lions conquer. Don't be afraid or discouraged, John is told. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. A lamb? In fact, the Greek is a little lamb, Mary's little lamb, slain, slaughtered. Not a lion, a lamb. A slain lamb. And this is one of the most defining moments in the Bible. What John hears is lion, but what John sees is lamb. John is to hold what he hears and what he sees together, although the two images are radically different. Lions symbolize royalty and power. Lambs symbolize gentle vulnerability and weakness. But in this throne room, the two are fused together. The conquering one overcomes not by his might, but by his sacrifice. Not by bloodshed, 
but by his blood shed. So John the Baptist, when he spots Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And not just any lamb. This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. What is the imagery getting at here? Eyes are the picture of wisdom. Seven is the number of completeness. This little lamb is completely wise, immensely wise. Horns are the picture of strength. This little lamb is completely strong, immensely powerful. This lamb is perfect wisdom and power. Perfect wisdom and power, it turns out, is not a lion winning by being a lion. Lioness is weakness and foolishness. The lion wins, triumphs by being a lamb, a little lamb, yea, a slaughtered lamb. And he just walks up there and takes the scroll out of the right hand of the one on the throne. And this time, verse 8 says, both the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the lion little lamb and they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign the earth. Why was the lamb slain? For the sake of us sheep. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the little lamb, the iniquity of us all. My mentor, Daryl Johnson, says, The lamb goes to the cross because of us. The lamb goes to the cross for us. The lamb goes to the cross instead of us. Yes, elders, worthy is the lamb, maybe even glory. Their song prompts a greater chorus. Allow yourself to be taken back in your mind to the most beautiful choral performance you've ever heard. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Somebody say amen because I'm out. I got nothing to add. I got no better product to offer you. The living God is on the throne and he rules over all, almighty, and yet he sacrifices himself even unto death so that you and I can know him and live with him and reign in his great kingdom of justice and peace and righteousness forever. Do you think we have anything worth glorifying here? Do you think we have enough material to work with? Anything here you want to retweet? If this is an accurate assessment of who God is, and I believe it is, sola scriptura, then that stunningly beautiful reality demands a sobering response. And in fact, that is what is elicited. 
Watch how these elders respond to this vision in Revelation 5.14. The four creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. City Church, in response to this vision, this reminder of who God is, we bow down. With our bodies, yes, at times, but more importantly, with our lives. This is worth helping others see. This indeed is good news to share. In fact, it's such incredibly good news, it must be shared. We can delight in it, but the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Our praise of God is simply a byproduct of our delight in him spilling over onto others. And so because God is so glorious, because he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise, it is only fitting we live our lives for his praise that we seek to give weight to, to give credit to, to increase the reputation of his great name. And we do that with our lips and with our lives, with our words and with our deeds. God's intent is that we would do that through whatever little sphere of influence he has given us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27 says. Whether we are students, parents, lawyers, bankers, graphic designers, or doctors, we receive whatever skills, expertise, training, and positions he has given us, and we offer them back to him to use for his glory, to the glory of God alone, because we know that is the only glory there really is. And we do this not by our lionness, but by our lambness. Not from positions of power or persuasive rhetoric or ferocious attacks on others, but from gentle, vulnerable, sacrificial love poured out for others, including perhaps especially those who would oppose us. And we do this knowing we need not fear. Without this vision from heaven of what is really true, friends, there is much to fear in this world. But because this vision is reality and will one day be fully our reality, we can sing along with the Christmas carol, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see you lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The King of kings and Lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Oh friends, this is a dark world at times. But as our visionary and Patmos began his first book, the book of John, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It cannot because his light is too bright. It's too pure. It's too radiant. Listen to how John concludes his book of Revelation, describing the day when this vision will finally be reality. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamb, the little lamb, 
is its lamp. As we gaze on his beauty and his brilliance and his power and his love, may we too shine like stars so that others may see this great light. Soli Deo Gloria.